Hey listeners, we'll get to unpacking Israeli history in just a second, but this is producer Rifki Stern jumping in for a moment to ask you for a favor. We want to hear from you directly. Who are you? What do you like? What do you hate? What shows don't exist in the world that you wish were out there? Tell us everything. Fill out our two-minute survey. Seriously, two minutes. The more detailed, the better, but we'll take anything. You can find the survey in the show notes of this episode or at this easy website, jewishunpack.com slash UIH survey, UIH being Unpacking Israeli History. I'll say it one more time, jewishunpack.com slash UIH survey. Okay, on to the show. Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. This season of Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Marcy and Andrew Spitzer and Barbara Summer and Alan Fisher. And this episode is generously sponsored by Lisa and Phil Barretts and by the Center for Advancement of Jewish Education. If there's one thing I'm confident about, it's that the world would be a better place if every single person we all knew listened to this podcast. Without a doubt, with your help, we can cure cancer and world hunger and maybe also bring peace to the Middle East just with this show. <laughs> so help make those things happen by sharing, unpacking Israeli history with everyone you know. Okay, Yala, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're wrong. I hope you're bracing yourselves because I'm about to get provocative. And if I do my job right, so are you. Because at the end of this episode, I'm going to want to hear your opinion on the following question. Ready? Here it goes. But wait, before you form your opinion, I ask one thing. Whatever your opinion already is, take a listen to this episode, think about it seriously, and then answer the poll. Okay, here it goes for real. Who should serve in the Israeli military? It doesn't sound like a particularly spicy question, does it? Because the obvious answer is Israelis. Like, duh, case closed, next question. But lean in a little closer, and you'll understand why this question is at the heart of Israel's most fraught culture war. Remember, Israel is tiny, with a population roughly equivalent to that of New York City. But unlike New York City, Israel borders three enemy territories, Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza. Plus, you know, 26 countries that refuse to recognize the world's only Jewish state, like Iran. A small country with big enemies has to rely on its military prowess. After all, the state was established in many ways as a safe haven for the world's Jews. But 20% of Israel isn't Jewish. Should Christian, Muslim, Baha'i, and Druze citizens be conscripted into a Jewish army? What if they have relatives in the West Bank and Gaza who they might be forced to fight against in a war? See, it's a can of worms. 
You might think things would be a little simpler when you look at Israel's Jewish population. Jewish army, Jewish citizens, okay. So all of Israel's Jews should serve, right? Well, it's complicated. Because as of 2019, only 69% of Jewish men and 56% of Jewish women are drafted into the IDF. Some earn exemptions because their physical and mental health doesn't allow them to serve. Fine. Some choose instead to do a year of service to the state. Cool. A tiny number are pacifists who refuse to draft on moral grounds. Gotcha. But there's only one group of Jewish Israelis who enjoy a near total exemption, who in 2019 sent only 1,222 men and zero women into the IDF. A minuscule fraction of their numbers whose status in society is becoming an increasingly sharp thorn in the side of many other Israelis. Who is this group? Why would Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, agree to a blanket lifetime exemption for a single group of Jews? And if the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is ever solved, will Israel's next major conflict be between its Jews? I told you we were going to get provocative in this episode. So first, some basic demographics. Israel is home to 9 million people, 80% of whom are Jews. Among those Jews are the Haredim, a.k.a. the ultra-Orthodox, who make up 13% of Israel's population. That's about 1,226,000 people. Ultra-Orthodox isn't the nicest label, with its connotations of fringiness or extremism. So we're going to stick to the much more inclusive term, Haredi. The word literally means one who trembles, as in trembling before God, as in Isaiah 66.2, where God says he seeks the kind of person, Khared al-Divari, who will tremble at my word. Nerd corner alert, Haredi shares its root with Harada, the modern Hebrew word for panic. But being Haredi has nothing to do with panic. Instead, the Haredi world revolves around Torah and, of course, its divine author, God. Haredi lives, like the lives of other observant Jews, are governed by a strict adherence to halakha, or Jewish law. Now, I know that someone is going to ask, wait, is Haredi the same as Hasidic? Good question, but no, without going into too much detail, I'll just sum it up like this. All Hasidic Jews are Haredi, but not all Haredim are Hasidic. You know, kind of like all squares are parallelograms, but not all parallelograms are squares. Sometimes I think it's amazing I have friends. Haredi is an umbrella term that describes a vibrant and highly diverse group. That's really important for us to emphasize because where secular Israelis might see Haredim as a solid wall of black and white, a uniform rejection and refusal to integrate, that's an incredibly unfair view. Like every other community on the planet, the Haredi community is textured. Still, some basic facts unite all Haredi Jews. The controversial ultra and the moniker ultra-Orthodox comes from the general Haredi rejection of secular life. Or as scholar Aaron Rose puts it, Haredi Judaism, regardless of its particular faction, objects to Jews entering the cultural fray of the modern West, studying in its institutions, revering its leaders, fighting in its wars, or partaking of its cultural bounty. But even that is controversial because modernity is hard to resist. So let's put it like this. Haredi might use the internet. They might play or watch sports now and again. They might go to college. 
But many Haredim don't do these things. It's perfectly normal for a Haredi Jew to stay off the internet or spend their whole life learning Torah. And it's perfectly normal to stay permanently ensconced inside a Haredi bubble. Here's Nehemiah and Yehudit, a Haredi couple from Jerusalem describing their lifestyle. We've never met uh, non-religious uh, Jews. You know, occasionally you walk in the street, you go to buy something, you go to the mall, you, you see them, but you have nothing to do with them. They're like out there, they're, there's like a big uh, wall uh, separating between, between you. It's not a physical wall, but uh, you basically have nothing to do with them. In fact, this so-called wall between Haredi and non-Haredi Jews was dramatized in a dystopian Israeli TV show called Autonomies, which imagined a world in which there are two Israels, the secular country with its capital in Tel Aviv, and the Haredi one centered in Jerusalem. As might be obvious from the premise, this isn't a peaceful split. We'll link to the trailer in the show notes. You can learn a lot about a culture's fixations and fears from its fiction. And this show demonstrates that non-Haredi Israelis are extremely troubled by the invisible wall that separates Haredim from the rest of Israel's Jews. Nowhere is this wall more apparent than in the IDF conscription office. As of 2016, a whopping 88% of Haredim are younger than 25 years old. That's a lot of 18 to 24-year-olds. Yet in 2019, only 1,222 Haredi men chose to enter the military. That's less than 1% of the total Haredi population. And despite countless efforts to raise that number, many Haredim are resistant to the prospect of conscription. Here's an unnamed Haredi protester speaking to French TV in 2017, furious at the prospect of a mandatory draft for his community. Israeli country is the one country of the world, democratic countries, what they take people in the army like the communists. I don't want to go what they want for me. I don't take them to, to, to be like me. But why? Why don't most Haredim join the Israeli army? Like so much about Israel, the answer to that question is rooted in history that predates the state. So let's talk about the forces, both internal and external, that have shaped the Haredi community. Because I've been throwing a lot of statistics at you, but statistics are only a small part of the story. As pogroms swept through Europe in the early 20th century, displacing millions of Eastern European Jews, traditional communities found themselves transplanting their customs in the friendlier ground of Palestine or America. And as the Nazi machine mowed relentlessly through Europe, the continent's remaining Haredi communities were all but devastated. Even in 2022, the Haredi community feels that loss. Their sages and traditions and villages all cast into the flames. So as survivors made their shell-shocked way to safety after the war, the Haredi community redoubled its commitment to protecting its ravaged identity. It wasn't easy. Many Haredi survivors made their way to Israel, a country founded on the premise of the new Jew. And there, they found their identities challenged as they confronted Zionism's total rejection of the traditional European Jewish identity. Or, as Oz Almog puts it in his book, The Sabra, The Creation of the New Jew, the Zionist revolution is generally presented as a revolution against the traditional Jewish world, 
a process summed up as the rejection of the diaspora. Of course, this is pretty simplistic, and Almo continues to say that Zionism's relation to tradition was a complex and convoluted combination of rejection and acceptance. But as you might imagine, the Haredi world was not interested in a convoluted combination of rejection and acceptance of their identity. Zionism was simply not compatible with their way of life. Not to mention that many viewed Zionism as out-and-out heresy. And why wouldn't they? Early Zionist thinkers like Micha Yosef Berdachevsky literally said, We are Hebrews and will serve ourselves or our hearts. Not we are Yehudim, we are Jews, but we are Ivrim, we are Hebrews. The language is intentional. It severs the Jewish community from its past, a past that so many early Zionists found shameful, a past that the Haredi community cherished. To explain the general, though not monolithic, Haredi view on Zionism would take an entire podcast in and of itself. But in short, like most Jews through the 2,000-year exile, Haredim prayed towards Jerusalem and dreamed of Zion and the redemption of the Jewish people that would return them to their land. But their Zion could not be constructed by a bunch of atheists in shorts. Their Zion was messianic. Only God could redeem the Jewish people. The Zion of a Jewish theocratic monarchy, a third temple, and a Messiah. So the Haredi community disengaged. As Zionists built new cities all over the growing country, Haredim built their own cities, enclaves in Jerusalem and B'nai Brak, where they could raise families, study Torah, and recreate as best they could the vanished world of pre-war Europe. And it worked. Scholar Aaron Rose observes, six decades after the death camps, the Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox community, the last vestige of pre-war traditional Jewish society, is experiencing a revival of incomparable scope. With one of the highest birth rates in the Western world, Haredi communities both in Israel and abroad boast numbers in the hundreds of thousands, and enrollment in Haredi yeshivot, or centers of learning, is at higher levels than ever. In other words, the Haredi commitment to Torah values and a Torah lifestyle, it's successful because the Haredi community protects itself fiercely from the rest of Israeli society. But if there's one factor that unites all Jewish Israelis and shapes the Israeli identity, it's the military. And to truly understand the Haredi resistance to the IDF, you need to understand the place it occupies in Israeli society. Because no Israeli institution represents Israeli society quite like the IDF. The Israeli military is the great equalizer, the crucible where an Israeli identity is forged, where people from all backgrounds and cultures rub elbows, form bonds, work together, fall in love, even meet their future spouses. Nerd Corner, the IDF website, ran a cute series of articles about couples who met during their military service, including Minister of Defense Benny Gantz and his wife Revital. Adorable. We'll link it in the show notes. But none of those are values the Haredi world is looking to adopt. They have their own systems that teach them teamwork and responsibility. Their own institutions that allow young people to meet and create families. Their own way of defending the state, which we'll talk about in a second. So to them, the IDF doesn't occupy quite the same hallowed ground as it does for other Israelis. Which, as you might imagine, can be a sore point for the rest of Israeli society, not to mention the Israeli government. So, how did we get here? 
The IDF has been an institution since before the creation of the state. As I say constantly, listen to our Black Saturday episode for more on that. So the Haredi community didn't just wake up one day in 1999 and decide, nah, no army for me. So what happened? How did the Haredi community manage to wrangle an army exemption for their community? Hey, listeners, you may already know that you're listening to a podcast from Unpacked. But did you know that Unpacked is so much more than just podcasts? Like our name suggests, we unpack stuff, specifically trending topics surrounding Israel and what it means to be Jewish in today's world. From the obvious, like Jewish holidays and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to the more obscure, like which, if any, superheroes are actually Jewish, and the origin story behind the Star of David. You can check us out on the web, articles, videos, memes, and more. Find us at jewishunpacked.com or follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Jewish Unpacked. See you there. Let's do a thought experiment. I want you to put yourself in David Ben-Gurion's shoes for a second. It's 1947. 66% of European Jewry has been wiped out. A stream of refugees is making its way towards the promised land, reuniting with the deeply religious Jewish community who had lived there for hundreds of years. And your number one job is getting the state for the Jews over the finish line. It's what you've been pouring your entire self into for years, and it's so, so close. You can taste it. The British are piecing out. The UN is almost on board. But it's not quite a done deal yet. As the British prepare to hand Palestine over to the Jews and the Arabs, the UN established a Special Committee on Palestine, or UNSCOP, whose report would decide the fate of the yet-unborn state of Israel. UNSCOP's job was to meet with Jews and Arabs alike to better understand each group's vision for its future independent homeland. Along with Ben-Gurion and other Zionist groups, UNSCOP also planned to meet with the Haredi political party Agudat Yisrael, which is now a major force in Israeli politics. But remember, Haredim and secular Zionism, well, they're not the best of friends. So back in 47, the Haredi bloc represented a significant threat to Ben-Gurion's vision of an independent Jewish state. Because if Agudat Yisrael told Unskop that they were perfectly happy without a state, well, that would be bad. Because the Haredi community had been in Israel then, called Palestine, for a long time. Their voices mattered and their voices could be disastrous to the whole Zionist project. Itzik Ackerman, a young Haredi father and full-time yeshiva student, expresses the party's original ethos vis-a-vis the Zionist movement. His words illustrate why Ben-Gurion took the Haredi bloc seriously. We lived here just fine without you Zionists for 800 years. Suddenly you showed up. Your first Aliyah was in 1882. First Aliyah. Yeah, right. First Aliyah. You showed up out of nowhere. We, the Haredim, are the first Aliyah. Then you show up in the 1800s and establish a state? Where did you even come from? You can leave. We lived here just fine without you. Oh, we're starting a state and it's going to be secular and we'll do whatever we want. We'll have the Eurovision contest on Shabbat. Like, guys, give us a break. You can go. We lived here just great without you. Ooh, imagine if Agudat Yisrael had said all that to Unscott back in 47. I mean, ugh, gulp. So Ben-Gurion did what all smart politicians do. He made them an offer they couldn't refuse. 
If they agreed to support the Zionist state, he'd make sure that Israel retained its Jewish character. What does that look like practically, you ask? Well, a few things. Number one, he agreed that Shabbat and holidays would be a part of the national calendar. Sounds great, right? I love going to Israel and feeling the peace of Shabbat settle over me as the traffic dies down and the buses in Jerusalem stop running. But I can see how this might rankle if you're not observant. Number two, Ben-Gurion granted the Haredim control over all Jewish marriages and divorces. Now, my wedding was uber-Orthodox, and uber-fun, by the way. Orthodox Jewish weddings are a blast. I'm not saying you should have Orthodox friends just to be invited to their weddings, but I'm not not saying that either. Still, not everyone wants an Orthodox wedding. True, most Jewish Israelis are pretty accustomed to the status quo, but a number are trying to change Israel's marriage system to be more inclusive because only Orthodox ceremonies are legally binding in Israel. You want a conservative, reform, reconstructionist, renewal, interfaith, or same-sex Jewish wedding? Head over to Cyprus. Of course, this is also an episode in and of itself. Number three, Ben-Gurion also gave Haredim control over kashrut certifications, which meant that only they could decide whether a restaurant or grocery store was kosher. Non-Haredi definitions of kashrut, or kosher, were not considered valid. And number four, the piece de resistance, for our purposes. I don't know why I just said that in a French accent, but go with it. Ben-Gurion agreed to military exemptions for yeshiva students. So when most other Israeli 18-year-olds were graduating from high school and shipping off to basic training, their Haredi counterparts were going straight to yeshiva to continue their Torah learning. Sounds like Agudah Israel got quite a deal, no? So why the heck would Ben-Gurion agree to all this? Though he was raised in an Orthodox home, Israel's first prime minister stopped practicing Judaism when he moved to Palestine. He didn't keep Shabbat. His son married a non-Jewish woman, a woman who Ben-Gurion absolutely loved, by the way, meaning that his marriage wasn't recognized by the Israeli rabbinate. Most importantly, as the soon-to-be head of a tiny country surrounded by enemies, why would Ben-Gurion exempt yeshiva students from the draft? Especially in the face of an inevitable Arab invasion. But remember, hindsight is twenty-twenty, and being a Monday morning quarterback is not cool at all. And this was back in 1947. The danger of Agudat Yisrael getting in the way of the Zionist project was real. And at the time, there were only 400 Haredi yeshiva students in the entire country. And meanwhile, huge numbers of non-Haredi Jews were flocking to Israel from all corners of the earth. So the first prime minister was convinced that, like so much else from the diaspora, Haredi religious traditions would simply fade away in the face of the new Judaism. Plus, Ben-Gurion wasn't exactly opposed to Bible study. True, he may have been an atheist. He may have believed that the new Jew should work the land, serve in the army, be a part of the Zionist cause. But his diaries and conversation were absolutely peppered with Jewish aphorisms, quotes from Tanakh, bits of Jewish wisdom, lessons he had learned from wise scholars. To him, the Tanakh was one of Judaism's most valuable cultural legacies. Perhaps most of all, he loved Judaism. He loved Jews. He wrote once, I won't label a Jew as either religious or secular, but only a Jew. There were always disagreements and quarrels among Jews in every generation, from ancient times to the present. There's nothing catastrophic in this. The catastrophe occurs when one side ceases to respect the other and begins hating it. And as the founder of a fragile, fractious state, Ben-Gurion was more than happy 
to let future generations figure out this whole religion thing. He was just trying to ensure that his tiny state survived. He didn't have time for these squabbles. As for Agudat Yisrael, they held up their end of the bargain. Their testimony to Unscop runs a whopping 58 pages, but it affirms, and I quote, we are establishing the Jewish national home. Over the whole country, the one national flag of the Torah is to be flying. Just as over all the country, there is only one flag of Zionism flying. That can be done only by one national territorial community of the Torah. In other words, from their perspective, the Jewish state was a go. Amazing. But here's the thing. Without quite realizing it, when he made this deal with the Haredim 75 years ago, Ben-Gurion had set the status quo. Seriously. That's what we call the deal today, the status quo agreement. And as Haredi leading public intellectual and Rabbi Yoshua Pfeffer says, once you have a status quo, then it becomes sanctified somehow. And obviously it's become very much entrenched in political Israel. But the status quo was starting to chafe a little by 1952. Ben-Gurion was having some second thoughts about this deal to exempt yeshiva students from the army and about the growing divisions between Haredi and non-Haredi Jews. 1% of the country was killed in the War of Independence. 1%! Almost every family had lost someone or knew someone who lost someone. It had to hurt most Israelis that the military burden wasn't shared equally. So this most secular of politicians approached the most illustrious of rabbis, Haredi luminary Rav Avram Yeshaya Karolitz, better known as the Chazonish. And the Chazonish who knew that Ben-Gurion was looking for some advice, came prepared. He invoked the Talmudic parable of two camels walking down a road. One camel is laden with goods, nearly buckling under the weight. The other is unburdened. The Chazonish asked Ben-Gurion, which camel should make way for the other? And just in case Ben-Gurion missed his point, he clarified, the camel with the backpack? That's the Charedim, bent under the yoke of heaven. The unburdened camel? That's everyone else free of the spiritual concerns that dominated Haredi life. The implication was clear, at least to the Chazanish. The camel with the backpack, the Haredim, they're exhausted. They're carrying the burden of the whole country. Of course, the other camel, free, no care in the world, should step aside for the other. As you might imagine, Ben-Gurion did not appreciate this depiction of Israeli society. Sure, Haredim have the heavy yoke of the Torah and the commandments, but non-Haredi Jews carry the burden of defending the country, absorbing its immigrants, running its economy. How could Haredi Jews not see that? Well, very easily. Because as the Chazon Ish explained, Haredi Jews provided a massive, though invisible, spiritual service to the state, to the entire Jewish people. Or as Itzik Ackerman put it in a 2021 documentary about the Haredi world, do you know what would happen if I didn't sit here and learn Torah? I am helping create the world. I am the engine. I stopped the Torah study, and it's like the battery is pulled out from the world. Go tell that to the average secular Israeli, and he'll look at you like, bro, go to the psych ward ASAP. This belief in the invisible protection of Torah study animates Haredi discourse. To take a Haredi Jew from his Torah study is to puncture, even just a little, the invisible shield that the Haredim hold over the entire state. This is what Rabbi Yoshua Pfeffer calls the Torah Dome. It's a play on the Iron Dome defense system that protects Israelis from frequent missile attacks. Most Israelis probably don't understand the science and engineering behind the Iron Dome, 
but they believe that it works. Similarly, Haredim believe that the Torah is equally protective, even if most secular Israelis can't or refuse to understand this. Even Haredi soldiers agree. Everyone has a purpose. We as devout Jews believe that some people's purpose is to study full-time, and that's a really important purpose. We're defending Israel physically, but I really believe that full-time Torah scholars protect us much more deeply on a spiritual level. Wait, what? Haredi soldiers? Remember when I told you about the 1,222 Haredi men who entered the army in 2019? They were followed by additional soldiers in 2020 and 2021, though no official stats are available yet. Sure, it's a small number. Still, it's not nothing. I told you the Haredi world was complicated. Drawn up in Jerusalem on an educational journey through Israel, Meir and Isaac quickly realized that they were meant for more. Three years later, these two tall Jews, and they are tall, created the podcast people are raving about. The Two Tall Jews show under their newly launched umbrella brand, Jewish Original Media, currently powered by NextGen Inc. and the World Jewish Congress. On this show, Mayer and Isaac bring on guests across the gamut of the Jewish experience to dive into all things Jewish, from the spiritual, the biblical, the historical, and the cultural, infused with all the nuance, there's that word, in between. They engage in conversations which build off their Jewish history page on Instagram at On This Day in Jewish History and Twitter at Daily Jewish, doing their part to extract the joy from the oi. It's very cute. As it happens, I was their first guest, and it was so much fun to be on the show with these guys. And I've observed their growth from the beginning ever since. I didn't know what to expect. Nah, I'm just messing. They're awesome. In fact, I still don't. Nah, they're really awesome. A week's worth of content can consist of Dr. Ruth, Sandy Koufax, and Treblinka, all in the span of three days. If their platform were a playlist, it would emphasize the shuffle, reaffirming and documenting the non-linear nature of history, one day at a time. Folks, you gotta check it out. Two Tall Jews wherever you listen to podcasts, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter, at Two Tall Jews Show. I've just spent the past 20 minutes telling you that Haridim don't join the army, that it's a threat to their identities, that they're busy engaged in the spiritually important work of building the Torah Dome around the state of Israel, that many are non-Zionists or sometimes even anti-Zionists and have little interest in rubbing elbows with their non-religious and even non-Jewish fellow citizens. And all that is true. But at the start of the episode, I mentioned that roughly 1% of the Haredi population chooses its own path. Roughly 1%, all male, chooses to enlist, and their reasons for doing so are varied. Most are united, though, by the benefits that the army provides. See, Israel's Haredi population tends to be quite poor. 44% of the Haredi community lives under the poverty line. The men generally learn in kolel or yeshiva full-time, leaving the women as the primary breadwinners. And since Haredim usually have large families with seven children on average, the paychecks stretch thinner and thinner with each child. Eventually, many Haredim men do end up needing to work, at least part-time, to supplement their wives' incomes. But to succeed in the job market, you need basic skills like English or math, subjects that the Haredim school system sometimes don't teach. 
Because nearly one quarter of all Haredi schools are exempt from the standards and requirements of the Israeli Ministry of Education. So while some Haredi schools equip their students with the skills necessary to succeed in the competitive job market, many do not. And if they want to pull their families out of poverty, Haredi men and women increasingly need a basic high school education. Without an education, Haredim in the workforce are limited in their ability to find a well-paying job, or even any job. But the army gives Haredim men a leg up, even paying for their secular studies. A retroactive diploma enables these young recruits to command higher salaries when they enter the job market. Some will even go on to higher education. Between 2010 and 2020, the number of Haredim students pursuing higher education has tripled. As of 2021, there are roughly 14,700 Haredi students of both genders pursuing a degree in fields like education, business administration, or paramedical roles like nursing, physical therapy, and emergency first aid. But money and education aren't the only benefits of joining the army. On the whole, Haredi Jews may not be Zionists, they may reject secular life, but they can't deny that there's a warmth to belonging to a wider cause. And as recruits in the Haredi-only unit, they don't need to worry as much about interacting with secular Israelis. The feeling that I'm a part of the IDF, I'm a part of the country, I'm a part of society, it's a really significant feeling. Many recruits feel a sense of pride, of ambassadorship. Here we are, they say, living proof that Haredim are able and willing to contribute to wider Israeli society. As soon as a secular person sees me, he understands that Haredi conscription isn't an option. There's a stigma in saying, no Haredim, go to the army. All the Haredim are parasites who don't work. But suddenly, you see a Haredi soldier in army fatigues, something changes a little. This is a common feeling among Haredi recruits. In the army, you're appreciated for who you are, not for who people think you are. When you're in your black and white outfit, everyone says, oh, there's the screw-up. It feels good not to be judged as the screw-up, but it wasn't the motivation for joining the army. It wasn't the motivation for joining the army, they say, and yet it's a side benefit, a benefit that frightens many Haredi parents. True, all parents want their children to succeed, but most don't want the success to come at the expense of their child's identity of the lessons that they've tried so hard to inculcate from day one. You and I might think it's wonderful to hear these young recruits talking about their sense of belonging, but what do their parents feel? What about their communities? Well, most don't approve, and their children have internalized the attitude. Here's Avshi Ackerman, the oldest of Itzik Ackerman's five children. A reporter asks, what do you want to be when you grow up? Avshi answers, you can't think about that. Everyone in my class says something different. I'll be a full-time Torah scholar. I'll be the head of yeshiva. I'll be whatever. Everyone says something different. The reporter asks another question. Are you leaning more towards being a full-time Torah scholar or more towards being a soldier? Avshi laughs. It's such a ridiculous question. I won't be a soldier, that's for sure. Representation matters. Avshi wants to be what he can see. And he sees full-time scholars. He sees heads of yeshivas. He doesn't see soldiers, not in his community, and that's not an accident. The Haredi community has staged countless protests against any attempt to woo their young men into the army. The clashes are hard to watch. I don't like seeing mostly Jewish policemen scrapping with fellow Jews. And here I go, getting provocative again. But I understand where Haredim are coming from. 
The wildly popular Israeli show Shababnikim centers on a bunch of Haredi yeshiva students. But they're not the serious scholars you might expect. In fact, the Israeli slang word Shababnik means roughly a Haredi youth who spends most of his time goofing off. But though these kids are more or less endearing bozos, they remain committed to their Haredi identities. In one episode, a yeshiva scholar asks a secular soldier, if there were a completely Haredi army, and you knew that if your child served in it, he would likely become Haredi, would you let him go? I like it. It's a question that many secular Israelis likely haven't considered. To them, the army is a fact of life, a major component of Israeli identity. They may wonder what if my kid comes back wounded or what if my kid comes back with PTSD, but they probably don't wonder what if my kid comes back with an identity I don't recognize and can't relate to, an identity I have spent years trying to avoid. But me speaking personally, as an Orthodox Jew raising Orthodox children, that's a question that keeps me up at night. I live in the United States of America, part of the diaspora. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't worry about the prospect of secular college, of big cities with negligible Jewish presence, of alternate ways of living life. That tightrope isn't an easy place to balance. Yes, I've chosen to walk it, but I get why the Haredi community has decided to eschew it altogether. But many non-Haredi Israelis see the issue as black and white, unintended. To them, Haredim are citizens, and all Jewish citizens have an obligation to the state. As of 2018, 70% of Jewish non-Haredi Israelis believe that Haredim should enlist. They live in Israel, the thinking goes. They should contribute like the rest of them do. An informal 2012 street poll bears this out. Corey Gilschuster of the Ask an Israeli Ask a Palestinian Project asked non-Haredi Israelis whether they believed Haredim should serve in the army. The answer was a resounding yes. Still, non-Haredi Israelis admit that Haredim can contribute in other ways. For example, in 2019, roughly 14,000 Israelis chose to do a Shnat Sherut, or a year of national service. But in 2020, only 495 Haredim took this option. Time and again, the Israeli government has tried to find ways to bridge the gap between Israel's Jewish groups. The government has established a number of commissions to research solutions for the gap between Haredim and other Jews. Still, the vast majority of Haredi boys do not enter the military, and any attempt to conscript them is met with fierce protest. What does this mean for the IDF, the so-called People's Army? Can it still be a People's Army without a significant percentage of its people? No one truly knows the answer to this question. But, as we said earlier in this episode, you can learn a lot about a society from its fiction. A number of recent Israeli TV shows have begun depicting the Haredi world with empathy and curiosity rather than disdain. You may have heard of Shtisel, which treats its slightly dysfunctional multi-generational clan with warmth and sympathy. But Shtisel doesn't delve too deeply into the question of conscription. Kipat Barzel, or Iron Dome, centers on an all-Haredi unit dealing with the ups and downs of military life, including the disapproval and anger that so many Haredi recruits face at home. And I'd argue that aside from being entertaining, these depictions are incredibly important, humanizing. Because even if a Haredi boy wants to serve in the army, lured by its many incentives, there's no guarantee that his community will let him. And that is a challenge that many non-Haredi Israelis for whom the army is a fact of life, 
seem not to understand. So that's a quick look at the very complicated story of Haredim and the army. And here are your five fast facts. Number one, the state of Israel imposes a mandatory draft on all Jewish citizens. But Haredim, or ultra-Orthodox Jews, are exempt from army service, which, as you might imagine, is a sore point for most non-Haredis. Number two, the exemption was codified by an unlikely figure, the diehard secularist David Ben-Gurion. Israel's first prime minister believed in the cultural and national importance of Torah study. But Ben-Gurion feared that the Haredim might tell UN observers that they didn't feel they needed a state. So he cut a deal with the Haredim with all sorts of incentives, including the draft exemption. Number three, at the time, the exemption only applied to 400 people. But Haredi Jews tend to have very large families, and today, over 60,000 Haredi Jews are exempt, and the number will likely grow due to the community's high birth rate. Number four, there have been numerous attempts to make army service a more palatable prospect for Haredi Jews, including financial incentives. And these days, a tiny minority of Haredi Jews do serve in special units sensitive to their religious needs. And number five, Haredim who enlist are in the minority. Simply put, the Haredi community believes that Torah study and other spiritual contributions are as important to national security and identity as military service. They feel themselves called to serve someone far more important and authoritative than the state, God. And in that service, they find their purpose among the people of Israel. Those are your five fast facts. But here's one enduring lesson as I see it. Though I'm a passionate Jew and Zionist, I'm not an Israeli. I didn't serve in the IDF. I don't need to confront the electrifying and terrifying thought of my children protecting the Jewish state with their own bodies. My cousins do. My uncles and aunts did. And who knows? Maybe my children will want to enlist in the Israeli army. For them, though, it will be a choice. So I'm a bit hesitant going down the potentially judgmental rabbit hole of asking whether I believe all Haredim should serve. I didn't. So I probably shouldn't be making sweeping moral pronouncements. Though really, what else is the point of a podcast? Especially because, to be honest with you, I think the Haredi community makes an important point. Yeah, Israel's national security, not to mention its internal character, is paramount. But as an aspiring religious Jew, I also think there's something sort of crucial about the spiritual role that Haredim often fill in Israeli society. So non-Haredim must work to understand where Haredim are coming from before the IDF can truly become integrated. And Haredim have to understand the pain and resentment of a mother who has lost her son in the latest clash while Haredi boys are safely learning in yeshiva. Because someone has to physically defend the Jewish state. And in this tiny blood-soaked corner of the world, every Israeli owes his or her life to the IDF. But the two sides are so mired in resentment that they talk past each other. And it's this conflict, Jew versus Jew in the Jewish state that keeps me up at night. Sure, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict provides plenty of fodder for my chronic anxiety, but I firmly believe that Jewish history is up to us, the Jews. It's the way we Jews treat each other, not the way that non-Jews treat us, that will determine what our world looks like. Will we build a peaceful world, a utopia of mutual respect, or will we tear each other down? Will we hurl insults, ignore each other's pain, and look past one another? We know what happens when Jews are divided. 
That's how you get 2,000 years of exile. And I don't think I'm being dramatic when I say that the success of the Zionist project of the Jewish experiment of modern self-determination depends on Jews bridging their gaps. There's little point to kibbutz galuyot, the ingathering of exiles, if a significant percentage of said exiles seem determined to misunderstand each other. Like the Israeli army, I believe that no one should be left behind. So whatever integration looks like, it cannot be done by force. Israeli society will not be sustainable if the gap between Haredim and non-Haredim continues to widen. Each side needs to view the other with respect, with a keen understanding of the other's legitimacy, with gentleness. It's not going to be easy. It certainly wasn't for our ancestors. But it's a challenge that Israel must rise to meet. Because Haredim will make up an enormous sector of society within a few decades. If Israel doesn't find a way to include them in the army, in the workforce, at the polls, then the country faces a great danger. We know what happens to divided societies. And we didn't endure exile for 2,000 years just to tear each other apart. So that's our provocative episode. And now it's your turn. For the first time ever, we're ending with a poll. What do you think? Should all Jewish citizens who are physically and mentally fit serve in the Israeli army? Your options are A, yes, B, no, C, yes for most, but only if there are separate units for Haredim and only if top yeshiva students are exempt, or D, no, but they must do some sort of national service. Check out the poll at jewishunpack.com slash Israeli army. The link is in the show notes. We can't Wait to hear what you think. Thank you all for listening. One last reminder, if you haven't yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And help us grow this podcast community by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Now it's time for our favorite segment, Israel Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. This week, meet Doug. Doug wrote, I'm listening to the new season and it's as excellent as the last one was. This is recommended listening for anyone interested in any way in Israel in the context of both the country and the wider world Jewish community. All the very best to you and your whole team. Doug, this email got me thinking. It was short and sweet, but I kept reading it again and again. And I was almost asking myself, why do I keep thinking about this? And it hit me because you drew this connection between the podcast, which is really about Israel, and the wider Jewish world. And you know that connection is really, really important. And not just the historical connection, which we've talked about in multiple episodes, see our Blaustein Ben-Gurion debate about whether Israel represents all of world Jewry for that one, but really because I think modern Israel is central to our lives today as Jews. There's so much more to talk about, but suffice to say, Doug, you got me thinking. So thank you for that. And listeners, if you want to be part of that conversation, be in touch. Be like Doug. Email me at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, and really check out our YouTube channel. And again, write to me at noam at jewishunpacked.com. We're going to end with a song that I think perfectly sums up this episode. Wikipedia by popular singer Hanan Ben-Ari encapsulates how easy it is to resort to stereotypes, to label and dismiss each other. But as he says in the song, don't sum me up on Wikipedia. It's my hope for each and every Jew 
that we see each other as we are, not as our stereotypes portray us. This episode was produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz and Rob Perrin. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember, please fill out that survey. You can find it in the show notes of this episode or at jewishunpacked.com slash UIH survey.